Good morning and welcome to the end of 2020 on the Mike Smith Show. Mike is away for the balance of the week, enjoying his Christmas break. And I'm Sterling Fox, back with you to kick this one out the door. (laughs) Oh, boy. Uh, We'll be back tomorrow and uh, uh, full of optimism for 2021, which is pretty easy, given the year we're just about to say goodbye to. Uh, We start off on a kind of a lighthearted note today, though. Uh, And it's, well, it's, it's a bit of a, it's a bittersweet story because it's, it's one of Vancouver's favorite New Year's Day activities and has been since the Roaring Twenties. Yeah, the other Roaring Twenties a century ago. Uh, It's the polar bear swim. And of course, in case you're just catching up to this news, it's been cancelled this year. It's going to look a little different because it's going to be virtual. Here with all the details from the Vancouver Park Board is Aquatic Services Supervisor Peter Fox. Peter, good morning and welcome. Good morning, Sterling. It's good to have you with us today, Peter. Was I right? The Pantages family started this. It was the 1920s when this all began, wasn't it? That's right. It was actually in 1920 when uh, the late Peter Pantages uh, organised the uh, Vancouver Polar Bear Swing Club. And they actually operated out of the basement of the Sylvia Hotel. And that was their changing rooms before they took their, uh, their swing uh, in English Bay. The Sylvia was the change house for the for the first. Well, that's that's a great. The Sylvia is such a storied location there, so close to English Bay. So, Peter, how many? Just just for comparison purposes, uh, after starting back in 1920, 99 years later, uh, in well, actually, uh, be a hundred years later, wouldn't it? January first this year, long before any uh, any pandemic reality set in. How many people registered and showed up for the polar bear swim? Well, we had on average around 2,000 people over probably the last 10 or 12 years. Mm-hmm. Last year, with the 100th anniversary, we had a bumper year. We had uh, some 9,000 people registered, and we did a bit of an estimate around 40,000 actually turned up on the day across all of English Bay there and watching from the road and so on. So it was quite a huge year yesterday, and of course, with the momentum we had, uh, unfortunately, we can't go ahead with it this year, and uh, we decided let's, let's do it with a difference. and do it as a digital dip, as we're calling it. The, the digital, digital, the digital dip. dip. That's not bad. Yeah. But, you know, have you write about the other part there, Peter, and I'd forgotten about it. Not only uh, at English Bay, and it's not going to happen this year, but the fun at English Bay, it, you don't have to be a swimmer. Uh, uh, lots of people don't. They just go down to watch all the crazy people go swimming, and that's yeah, fun, that's too. Uh, and, and that's why that enormous crowd last year, right? Yeah, absolutely. We had, you know, last year we did were able to add a huge entertainment component to it, a recreation component with uh, music, bands, and so on. Sure. uh, It certainly added to the event, for sure. Well, that was. I'm glad we got our hundredth anniversary in with great splash, no pun intended, and panache, Peter. Because 2021's going to be kind of quiet. So, what's the plan? Okay, so basically, we're asking people to do a dip of a kind at home, whether it's in the uh, kiddie pool or a bath. Keep the water around six or seven degrees. That's uh, 44 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, keep it cool, and then maybe if they wish to take a photo or video, they can actually do that and then send it in to us at the park board, and uh, we can then provide the commemorative button back, which is something that is a collector's item for many, many uh, polar bear dip swimmers every year. Definitely, and uh, certificate as well too. So they can uh, they can send that photo or video in. We've got the details on our. Okay, so you need to take a dip on English Bay. You need to record it so you have photographic evidence of said dip, and then you send it to the uh, people at the park board and the English Bay, the Vancouver Polar Bear Club. Is that who's issuing the commemorative pins, the Polar Bear Club, Peter? 
uh, through the through the parks board. So okay, the, we've got it. So it's not actually an English Bay. Do it at home. Right, and, of course. <laughs> yeah, uh, do it at home and uh, send it to us at polar bears swim polar bears swim at vancouver.ca. Oh, I see. Okay, uh, so again, now you talked about uh, a kiddie pool and also keeping the water temperature down to around forty-four Fahrenheit or roughly seven degrees Celsius, because that was the temperature of English Bay a year ago tomorrow. So you're trying to replicate that as best you can. Uh, can you be right. indoors in a cold uh, water uh, situation yeah. and qualify? Sure can. Absolutely. Do it in the bath, fill it up, maybe put some ice in it oh. and uh, keep it down. Keep the temperature <laughs> down, yeah. Um, yeah, well, so it's going to be good. Lisa, Lisa Pantagius, Peter's granddaughter, is doing her, I think, a 59th spin, but she's doing it in her fish pond. And I think she tells me her fish pond is a pleasant six degrees. So oh, so now that's... That's always that's always been the case, hasn't it? Since uh, this began back in 1920, there's uh, typically been one or more representatives of the Pantages family participating in this because it was Peter back 100 years ago that started it. So his granddaughter continues the family tradition, and you say she's going to do it in her fish pond this year? That's what she tells me. <laughs> well, that's great. I mean, you got to appreciate the, the spirit, if nothing else. That's right, for sure. And they still meet as a family at the Sylvia Hotel every year. Oh, really? So there you go. Interesting stuff. So now what you do again, uh, the, I've I found the, uh, the address to send your uh, photograph of yourself or your family member uh, doing the official polar bear dip. The address is vancouver.ca. That's the city website, vancouver.ca slash polar bear swim. Right, Peter? Yep, that's the one. Okay, and then once that information gets to them, uh, then uh, uh, do you accept stills or videos or both? Both. No, okay. No, video. Yep. Okay. And then we'll we'll be able to send out the commemorative uh, certificate and the collector's button, the commemorative collector's button that we have every year. So. And I understand that uh, because there is, this is a tradition and because there are typically souvenirs associated with one's polar bear experience beyond the memory, <laughs> yep. such such it is. Not everybody's recollection of the polar day swim, uh, polar bear swim, Peter, is equal. <laughs> Many of us have sort of entered in and exited in something of a fog on New Year's Day. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. It's quite interesting standing in front of the queue or the line waiting to go. And uh, it's. It's an interesting group of people. I'm all experiences the night before. No, no question about it. But uh, because the, you, there is a, a need or a request or desire for souvenirs, you still can buy. Uh, and you've got even you've even got polar bear swim face masks for sale this year. That's right. Yeah, we thought we better keep in line with the way we're going, and uh, the masks are there, so they've got the logo for this year on the masks, and uh, the typical T-shirt, toques, and so on. We've got that merchandise available as well. Okay, and that can all be found at the at the website as well. Uh, okay, and that's Vancouver.ca slash Polar Bear Swim. If you plan on doing something resembling the Polar Bear Swim, uh, Peter Fox and his colleagues at the uh, Aquatics section of the Vancouver Parks Board recommend you do it at home. Home, and uh, you can do it in your bathtub. You can do it in the kiddie pool in the backyard. You can do it in any body of water that will hold you, I guess, Peter. That's right, as long as it's cold. <laughs> as long as it's cold. <laughs> I don't think... Now, I'm looking at the forecast for tomorrow, it, and uh, Environment Canada says it's going to be raining with an afternoon high of 8 degrees. Typically, Peter, when we do have the polar bear swim, what is the point of entry? Is it noon on, English, uh, on uh, New Year's Day? 
It's uh, 2.30 in the afternoon. 2.30. Okay, but now tomorrow for taking pictures and stuff, it doesn't matter what time of day you go after it, right? No, it doesn't really, no, but it'd be good it's around the 2.30 mark, and then we know. Okay. Yeah. All right. Keep, so, keeping the memory and the momentum moving. All right. Well, Peter, thanks for joining us. It's going to be a very quiet New Year's Day for you, comparatively speaking, when uh, the, the folks at the Park Board experience one of their busiest days of the year. It's going to be quite, quite quiet, isn't it? It certainly is. That's for sure. Thank you. Well, it's uh, it's a pleasure to have you with us. And again, I'm just going to remind our listeners that you send that photo to vancouver.ca slash polar bear swim. Peter Fox, Happy New Year. Thank you, Sterling. Welcome back. It's Sterling for Mike on New Year's Eve. Right now, all the COVID vaccinations on the market require two shots. But the head of Ontario's Vaccine Distribution Task Force wants Health Canada to look into allowing Moderna's vaccine to be administered as one less effective dose instead of two, which would allow the team to ramp up their vaccination schedule across the province. Here to talk about the uh, request and the likelihood of it being granted and whether or not it will still work effectively enough is Jason Tetro. Uh, Jason is back with us from, of course, the Super Awesome Science Show. Jason, good morning. Thanks for joining us again. Hey, great to be with you. So, Moderna, we've we, we've talked extensively about both Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, and Jason, they're both uh, two shot to be completely successful programs. Ontario wants Moderna's to be administered as one. Uh, a tip now, have you on you've uh, uh, read the request? Do mm-hmm. they plan to ever return to a second shot, or are they just going to take a higher risk? Let's give everybody one and see what happens. Approach. Well, the whole idea is to try and utilize all the vaccine that they currently have for that single shot uh, on the hope that within the next 12 weeks, we're going to have more than enough vaccine to be able to go back to those people and to give them the second shot. Now, the whole point behind this is that you, when you're identifying when is the best time to get a booster, you want to go several weeks out beyond the three or four that we currently have. And so you get a feel for what the immune response is going to be uh, at the you know two-month and three-month mark. Mm-hmm. So when you've done that, then you can get a feel for how long you can go if you do end up having a shortage. That's basically the logistics. Here's the problem. The actual vaccination regulatory approval happened on the two dose with the third week or the fourth week, depending on which one it was. Mm -hmm. And that's what got the drug identification number and allowed it to be sold here in Canada. If you go outside of that, then you are taking a risk that is beyond the scope of what Health Canada has approved. And that's really where the issue becomes. It's both a a logistics concern, yes, but it's also a regulatory one because if somebody ends up catching COVID and having severe symptoms, even if they had the vaccine the first first shot, Mm -hmm. does that necessarily mean that the vaccine is not working? Like who is the, who was responsible for that? And these are the types of questions that they don't ask at the higher levels. These are the ones where the people who are doing the epidemiology, the vaccinology, all that type of thing have the answers too. It's just that they don't seem to be asked uh, the questions right now. Well, I think uh, that's partly, Jason, because the questions are being asked by politicians who see who, who desperately want to be seen to be doing something right and effective and on a grand scale. And uh, so their imagination goes to let's get as many Ontarians, in this case, uh, mm-hmm. vaccinated as possible. Let's get them all, as many people 
done as we can, and then we'll get around to the second round. And it, and I was I wasn't being flippant when I uh, uh, identified this as a higher risk alternative. But Jason, oh, yeah. it, it definitely seems to be. And I'm just just checking on this. The first do- dose is supposed to provide. 80% protection, and then roughly 28 days later, you get the second shot, and that pops your figure up to 95%, the number that we become familiar with. So gambling, that 80% effectiveness uh, will will work on a larger group of people, is a risk, isn't it? Yes, and you're also using a number that is a statistical analysis or calculation to get to that 80%. When you go to the data itself of these clinical trials and you look at what happens in the immune system of the individual person, which is the most important thing, <laughs> remember that, Yeah. What, ha- what ends up happening is that after the first shot, you have a moderate, kind of okay response. And the problem with that is if you don't have um, the ability to be able to sustain that, or you have such a high virus load inside of you that that moderate protection can be overwhelmed, then you're going to start progressing into symptoms and possibly severe disease. Once you've had the second shot, it's an exponential rise. Imagine a car, you have normal gas in it, eh, it runs okay, you know, everyone's happy with it. Mm -hmm. But then all of a sudden, you throw in some of that turbo nitro and boom, you're going like crazy. That's basically what happens to the immune response. So that's why we need that second dose. And so to forego that puts you in a much higher risk that people who simply cannot overwhelm or or who cannot uh, overcome uh, a viral load uh, will eventually end up being sick and we could end up in some serious trouble. So it is a hot, it is a pretty hot gamble then, isn't it? They're gambling that the, they can get large numbers. Again, we're talking about the province of Ontario, but this could be any Canadian province. It just happens mm-hmm. to be the one where the most Canadians live. Uh, and in this case, they're gambling that by uh, taking the current stocks and vaccinating as many different people as possible, by the time that stock is exhausted, Jason, the mm-hmm. second wave or the second round of vaccine will be in. They can start, they can continue with their first uh, vaccines for many, but uh, then they can start the second vaccine, the required second jab to make it fully effective. Yeah, and and I think that's very short-sighted when you think about it because we're going to soon see the AstraZeneca being approved. Right. Now, the reason that's important is, A, it's cheaper and you can get many, many more doses of that, but more importantly you don't vaccinate elderly people with this one. So if you do a staggered approach, much like we do with the flu vaccine with children and adults and elderly, then what you can do is you can use the Pfizer and also the Moderna for the elderly because they were tested. The AstraZeneca can go to the people who are younger than that in the middle ages. And then when we start seeing the Novavax coming out, which is probably going to be around the spring, that's when we can actually start seeing everybody being vaccinated no matter where you happen to be because it's room temperature rather than cold chain. So that's really what you should be looking at in terms of of logistics. The problem is, as you said, when it comes to politicians, they make a mistake. They want to look as uh, they're reactogenic. And so they all of a sudden want to do something to make it look like they're actually still on top of it. Yeah. This is not the approach that one should be taking. And I desperately hope that we don't hear about the same thing uh, in British Columbia. Yeah, because Jim's just emailing me asking about what happens if you get the first shot. There are none left when it's time for your second shot. You're just exposed. You, you, you've already had a shot. You, had, you have some resistance in your body, but you don't have the max and therefore you're exposed, right? Well, you're at risk, absolutely. Yeah, that's and what I mean. here's the thing. 
we already have told uh, people for, for, for over a month now that even though we, the vaccine is out, until we get, you know, 80% vaccinated or at least having had the, uh, the virus beforehand, um, you're going to have to continue wearing masks. You're going to have to continue having some kind of social distancing. I mean, it's not going to go away simply because you have something, you know, a shot in your arm. That's a very, so, I have to leave it there, Jason, because I'm out of time, but that's a very important note to, to remind us and leave us with, no matter how quickly we get to our shots, masks are going to be our fact of life for quite some time to come. Thanks for this, Jason. Happy New Year. Welcome back. It's Sterling Fox in for the vacationing Mike Smith on New Year's Eve in Vancouver. Sad story in our city. Last weekend, there were two murders, one person 19 years old. And on Monday, a 14-year-old boy in Surrey uh, became one of B.C.'s youngest victims of fatal gun violence on Monday night. The mother of this boy says she has no idea why anyone would want to kill her son. My son's epically amazing. He's an amazing young man. He's he my best was a friend. good friend. He he's a good kid. He's always like he's loving, caring. He always cared about people, friends, everything. He cares about everything. Cal's amazing. We were talking now with a researcher from Simon Fraser University. Hillary Morden is with us. Ms. Morden is a PhD candidate in the social sciences faculty at SFU whose work specializes in gangs and offenders and the establishment and spread of gangs in British Columbia. Hillary Morden, good morning and welcome. Thank you. So um, this pattern, and we saw uh, mm-hmm. post, we, we saw the situation again this weekend where uh, a, a young person, both of these young men were, were young, mm-hmm. but both of them murdered, and then we see the uh, the burning vehicle found abandoned uh, roughly an hour or so later, uh, presumed to be identified with the, uh, the murder that took place earlier. This is a pattern that's quite familiar to us in a terrible way. It is indeed. Um, and it's a pattern that's been going on for decades in our region. So it's not new. It's very familiar. And the, the um, use of what we call a DNA torch, burning up evidence, yes. is that's so common. It's common in a lot of crimes. It, we see it in um, crimes that aren't gang-related, that are related to serious uh, crimes such as rape, murder, um, serious assaults. The the perpetrators are just trying to destroy evidence is all they're doing. And in the case of gangs, they'll they'll go and steal a car and then torch it because, you know, no cost to them then, right? Exactly. Uh, Let's uh, hear, Hillary, just before we continue the conversation, we have a little bit more from uh, this young man's mother and sister. It was a setup. Why do you think it was a setup? Because, um... Because he was told to go to a place that wasn't the right place and he got shot. Right. Like they said, there was a black Sudan leaving the, the, the time area, the so, so it was there, it was a drive-by. obviously it was a setup. He setup. was set up. Yeah, okay. he was set up. He told us he'd be back before curfew, and he never came back. And we were like, all of us were calling his phone. Yeah, everybody. We were everybody. all like, we were even getting people that like, just everybody just to call him and see if he's okay. He wasn't answering anybody's call. The last thing he said to me, like just when he was in the cab going there, he said to me, I'm coming home soon, and he never came back. This uh, hit uh, was a targeted hit. The uh, police authorities have uh, taken a good long look at this, Hillary, recognized the patterns, part of which you've already described, and determined Mm -hmm. that it was a targeted hit. And a lot of people in this town going, oh my gosh, what kind of of things are going on where they're targeting 14-year-olds? Well, this isn't the first time that... that 
um, it's the first time that somebody this young died in this type of a hit. But if we go back to 2009 with the targeted hit on Nikki Alamy, her four-year-old son was in the backseat of the car. That's right, yeah. So that child could easily have been killed that day. There were numerous bullets in the car. Um, that hit was supposedly aimed at her husband, not at her. She was driving her husband's car. But the, the fact that that four-year-old wasn't murdered that day was just chance. I mean, it's not like they can aim that well most of the time. Mm-hmm. And there's often multiple shots to ensure that they do the job because they know that they may not hit with just one bullet. So um, shocking, yes. Sad and disturbing, yes. But also familiar. It, it, this, this isn't new. We've had other young men lured to places. And when I was thinking about this, this incident, I knew for a fact that he'd been lured there because if, if this had been a normal meetup, then his regular driver would have driven him, mm-hmm. a friend would have driven him, or one of the gypsies that drive for money that they use because they don't often use formal cab companies. They'll use a friend and they'll pay a friend or a friend of a friend. Sure. And they use their car and that person as a driver. And none of those people are there. So my my suspicion based on the psychology of humans is that others knew that there were people near to him who knew this was going to happen. And so they weren't available to drive. Interesting and stuff. And thus he resorted to uh, uh, formal cab taking, He took a taxi, that's right. Yeah. Yes, an uh, actual taxi. Hillary, I think what's worrying a lot of people here in this market in Vancouver is we're watching Toronto, which has three times as many people. There are six million people mm-hmm. there. But the, the escalation of gang and particularly gang slash gun violence in the last couple of years in that city is shocking. And we see now open, uh, brazen daytime uh, shooting incidents between young gang members and they don't care if there's innocent people caught in the crossfire and it has happened so what we're concerned about here hillary is how likely is that uh, is the escalation that we fear is sort of coming and 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 mounting could it come to that oh of course and we saw that in 2017 2016 2017 i was tracking the tit-for-tat shootings in surrey right and there were, you know, it, like at one point I'd gotten up to 19 or 20 shootings when I stopped counting because I, I wasn't focusing on that, but it was just a curiosity. And so if you look at them historically, if we go back to the, mur- well, if we go back to the murders um, perpetrated under the power of Bindi Joel and on from then, it's, there's a curve that rises and falls and it's, but it's always there. Mm-hmm. It, it doesn't leave. Right. So, yes, we'll see times of more intense tit-for-tat shootings. I, nobody can predict the future. The, this spate of shootings may be all we see. I mean, Langley had one back in August or something where there were three shootings in three days, and then everything went quiet again. Right, right. So this is, so, this is, this is a, 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 they prefer to run under the radar. They prefer oh, to, to, to not be noticed, but every now and then uh, somebody gets too angry at somebody and somebody dies, and all of a sudden it's out in the open. 
that that's one and the other is sending overt messages you know if you if we go back to the medieval times the the kings in those days didn't have to kill every soldier they just had to kill a couple of them and put their heads on a spike uh, yeah. outside the castle and then everybody knew don't mess with this guy right so sometimes that's the message being given is look i can get you anytime anywhere and you're not safe period which this may be that, who knows, or it could just be hot tempers, street credibility, you know, proving your power, jostling within the gangs. And this is, this is part of the reason we have so much trouble here is the, the, what I call fuzzy borders on our gangs where allegiances shift and, you know, one day you're in the UN, the next day you're in the Brothers Keepers, oh, sure. or vice versa. Right, right. And then, you know, all the retaliation and jostling that goes from that. The fact that in Vancouver, you can be a nobody 15-year-old today, and in three or four years, a, play, a serious player. I mean, the Bacon Brothers showed that. They, they proved to everybody, you can be nothing and then a big guy. Right. Yeah. And so, so the very quality of our gangs being that way, the fact that a lot of our gangs aren't formal, but they're friend groups with these fuzzy borders. It's like this massive Venn diagram where, yeah, I might be in this gang today, but I have a cousin, close friends who are in that gang. Maybe I shift, do some work for them. We've got a lot of gypsy players who work on contract for whoever pays the best. And so because of this, our gangs are never stable. They're always jostling. They're always moving. There's always new players coming in. Um, we have lots and lots of cities and other gangs that we can reach out to to yep. do our contract work. So because of that nature, it's, it's just not stable. And this instability is what leads to a lot of these um, shootings, also, we don't have uh, geographic borders, and because of that, it's always tempting to take the well, next territory sure. over, right? Yeah, turf wars, right? That's been going on for a few thousand years. Absolutely, and while we don't have set turfs, as it were, like it's not like down in the United States in, say, L.A., where it's the 19th Street Bloods or Crips. Sure, sure. We don't have that, but we do have territories and we do have areas that are more viable and more valuable for drug dealing and prostitution and illegal gambling. And so, you know, if you can move into that territory, take it over, you see some weakness, let's say somebody who's had basic control of that area has got internal strife they've got people trying to move up and take over power that's perfect opportunity to move in now that this is not that this is a lured targeted shooting from what i can see and while the family is saying that he was in the wrong place mm-hmm. nah, i that's that's hard to countenance with the the evidence here. Yeah, it's also is, a, it's, it's also a, a disturbing end to what has been a really bizarre year in the first place, mm, Hillary. It's it's yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> it's just an odd uh, uh, ending to a, to a crazy year. Thank you for this this yes. morning. It's a bit reassuring to hear that uh, uh, from an expert that this is ongoing. No. That it's not it's not a good situation to be no. in, but it, it shouldn't be uh, it sh- one shouldn't become too alarmed uh, beyond just the fact that a four 
14-year-old was was taken away. That That's just an awful which is, way. Which is devastating. Let's all face facts. The, the fact that we lost a child is on all of us. It's, it's not on his family. It is on all of us. As I've uh, argued in all the research that I've done and from all the interviews that I've done with active gang members, what we know is that the reason they're in the gang is because at some point in their life, all the adults around them, there was a crisis of some sort where the adults around them either couldn't or wouldn't step in and help them, and we lost them. And we lost them from our families, we lost them from our schools, we lost them from our churches, we lost them from our sports teams. And so it's, this is on everyone's shoulders. If we don't step in and support families and support children who are going through a crisis, when their parents either can't or won't help them, that's on us. So his murder, is uh, that's all our responsibility. As of uh, tomorrow, for that one for December 31st, all premises, um, uh, liquor sales for on-site and off-site consumption must cease between 8 p.m. on December 31st and 9 a.m. on January 1st. 2021. Dr. Bonnie Henry yesterday announcing the closure and the cessation of alcohol sales of all descriptions effective 8 p.m. this evening. A last-minute announcement to be sure. Jeff Guignard is the executive director of ABLE BC, the Alliance of Beverage Licensees for this province. Jeff, good morning. Your reaction, please. Yeah, good morning. Well, quite frankly, we're angry uh, that this order has done at the very last minute without any industry consultation. I mean, I, leaving aside the, what I would consider the illogical and stupid decision to move until 8 p.m., the fact that we just sprung this on industry after folks had already booked reservations, spent thousands of dollars on special menu items, bought an extra inventory, you know, bulked up on staff, uh, just to spring it on us uh, when we have no time to react is really, really disappointing. What would have been a reasonable uh, warning period? 48 hours, Jeff, 72 a week? What, 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 would have, well, what could have helped? I'll tell you what, given that we speak with uh, folks in government on a regular basis, and I speak with folks in the provincial health office pretty much weekly, uh, and Dr. Henry's admitted she's been thinking about this for some time, uh, we would have expected to get at least a week's notice on this, right? And, and I say a week is in our universe, and I'm, I'm sure not everyone understands this, but when we look at how we purchase products from our suppliers, we typically do it on a weekly basis. Sure. So if we had known this a week ago, we would not have spent thousands of dollars, right? The net impact of this, right, is that folks are canceling their 8 p.m. reservation mm-hmm. because they now find they can't get a glass of champagne uh, to help bring in the new year, which we were already, you know, doing it differently this year with a bunch of additional protocols in place to keep customers and staff safe, right? But the, uh, the decision to end it early means that those businesses are going to lose all of that extra revenue they were hoping to make after they've already spent the money on the supplies and ingredients and staff. Yeah. Right? It's, um, and I have to say, unless folks you know, happen to catch the news yesterday or listen to us talk, chatting about this right now, you could be opening up your pub or restaurant today not knowing that your current business plan is going to violate the health order that yesterday was totally fine. Yeah, and here's Adrian Dix on why 8 p.m. We know that the consumption of alcohol uh, in those kinds of settings does spread transmission. How do we know this? Because we saw a change in those transmission patterns when we moved the last call to 10 p.m. earlier this year. And so this is a step taken for this day to try and keep people safer. What do we know about transmissions in the uh, indoor hospitality industry in B.C. in general, Jeff? 
Yeah, I would say with all the respect to the minister, I, 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 that's not true. Um, what happened after we moved liquor sales, I ended them at 10 p.m., is that several weeks later, Dr. Henry had to pass an order prohibiting home gatherings because people started going home right. and having parties that are unmonitored, unsupervised, and there's no protocols in place. Like that, that's a bit of revisionist history to suggest that moving liquor sales earlier had that effect. It did not. Uh, I'd also say that Dr. Henry herself has been repeatedly clear that the hospitality sector is not a significant source of transmission. That's my question in the first place, yeah. Right. I mean, and partly the reason she said that is our industry has worked really closely with her office and government for the past months to put in place the most stringent public health protocols ever issued in this province, which is why you go to a restaurant or pub or bar and your contact trace, you're sitting inside plexiglass, there's lots of masks. All of that is the reason that there are no transmissions coming from our sector. It wasn't the change in ours. And I think anybody would, would have a hard time understanding how closing down liquor retail sales two hours or three hours earlier is going to stop people from consuming alcohol. Right. And I uh, just look at the lineups at the liquor stores anywhere in British Columbia. Oh, right now, for example, Jeff, I was just buying earlier. Yeah. I'm only 10 seconds here. A a friend in the business told me it felt like sabotage when he heard the news yesterday. Similar feeling with you. People are feel profoundly let down, betrayed and disrespected that this was done at the last minute. Whereas if we worked on this a week earlier, we could have had a much different story and come up with all the protocols needed to ensure we're meeting her goals. I'm glad you joined us this morning. Unfortunately, under these circumstances, Jeff, uh, it's it's a terrible end to a rotten year. Let's hope 2021 provides all of us some relief, much needed in the case of the hospitality industry. Thank you for this. Happy New Year. Same to you. It's Sterling Fox in for Mike Smith, joined on the line by Mario Conseco from Research Company right here in Vancouver as we take a look at 2020 as we say goodbye. We are just absolutely delighted to have Mario with us today. Mario has been taking the pulse of Canadians, British Columbians included. He's based here in Vancouver for the past year. Mario, good morning, Happy New Year, and what a year to say goodbye to. Good morning, Sterling. Yes, uh, only a few more hours and then we'll be ready for 2021, uh, quite the year. Certainly not what we expected. When we were planning on what we were going to be doing in 2020, I didn't really foresee doing so many surveys about the COVID-19 pandemic, but here we are. And, and uh, is that, as it turns out, and you do the math on this last day of the year, what subject did you research the most in 2020? Was it, in fact, COVID-19? It was COVID-19. You know, we knew that we were going to be expecting an election in the United States that was going to be consuming most of our time, and it did. Uh, But ultimately, I think it was all of the situations that uh, really rose because of this pandemic, not only political, you know, how uh, Canadians felt about the way this COVID-19 pandemic was handled, Mm -hmm. uh, but also a lot of sociological stuff. You know, the idea of working from home, the idea of asking Canadians when this was going to end. And, you know, looking back on some of the surveys that we conducted, Uh, When we were asking in April when this was going to be over, we still saw a very high chunk of uh, Canadians who said uh, it'll be over by summer, it'll be over by Labor Day, it'll be over by Christmas. Here we are, just a few hours to go, and it's still with us. Yeah. Uh, And uh, again, you mentioned working from home. Now, this is a phenomenon that very few of us uh, were familiar with going into 2020. Some of us had the luxury of being able to do some some remote work, uh, but a a lot of us have been put into a situation. Gosh, about two-thirds of the staff of this radio station has been broadcasting from home, for crying out loud, Mario. We've done a lot of pivoting in 2020. 
Well, it's something that was quite interesting at the start. When we asked in April about Canadians who were working from home provisionally, uh, there was a lot of hesitation. There were a lot who said, I don't know if I'll be able to do all of this. I don't know if my company is really keeping tabs on what I'm supposed to be doing. Yeah. And when we asked in December, 80% of Canadians who were working from home said, I like this. I want to continue doing this after the COVID-19 pandemic is over. So this definitely has uh, wide ramifications on office planning. You know, do you really need to have everybody at the office all the time? And what is going to happen with all of those businesses that depend on those who are commuting or staying away from home? So everything from restaurants uh, to food trucks uh, could be affected if a lot of Canadians say, I like what I'm doing at home and I want to continue doing it. I'm looking forward to your first survey of employers on that fact, because Mario, (laughs) because we've talked to a few of them on this show uh, and, you know, employers have a slightly different take on this. They, of course, they're all about productivity and uh, some of them, not all, but some employers have noticed a significant decrease in overall team productivity levels Certain individuals coming through just fine, but overall, the team levels are down simply because it's not a team the way teams are thought to be constructed in workplaces. Well, and that is something that we also noticed in in the survey that we conducted. We see that there's uh, two-thirds of those who are working from home who miss the camaraderie of the office, Mm -hmm. who miss talking to people all the time. And it's it's not something that you can replicate uh, uh, by Zoom or by any other method that you use to communicate with the office. So there's going to be some changes, definitely, when it comes to how we work. Uh, but ultimately, I think it's uh, the, the onus is on, the, um, on, on those who are uh, essentially making those decisions um, to ensure that, you know, if you're at home and you can work at least a few times a week from home, you can continue to do so. But uh, it'll take some time. One of the other things that has changed almost as dramatically as our work habits and indeed workplaces, Mario, is our children's habits, their school habits, and many of us have become, however reluctantly, uh, homeschoolers and have learned that we're not quite as bright as your average fifth grader like that TV show (laughs) used to challenge us. So again, uh, uh, enormous changes, and that's at a parent and child level. Well, this was definitely one of the toughest uh, months of the pandemic. If we go back, when you look at the situation we had in April and May, the schools were closed. You had a lot of people who were working from home, taking care of kids at the same time. And we wound up in a situation where the ideals that you had when it came to uh, something as easy as uh, screen time for your kids were definitely different because of this pandemic. You know, we were doing some research over the past couple of years and you know, Canadians were very stern about how much they wanted their kids exposed to screen time or giving them an iPad or a phone or whatever it was, mm-hmm. and how everything changed because of the pandemic. You had to be at the office, you have to do other things, and without a place for the kids to go to, it became the de facto babysitter. It's getting a little bit better now because the schools are mostly back in session, uh, but back in April, it was one of those times where the bandwidth use at home was definitely skyrocketing. And I would think in terms of the way that the, the most significant changes have impacted us uh, beyond, of course, the workplace and the school, Mario, uh, the, the third and probably actually should have been first on the list is our sense of understanding and, and appreciation for our healthcare system. That has been uh, one of the remarkable moments of the pandemic, the fact that we've had 
seen other countries that are definitely facing serious challenges with their healthcare systems. We see it in Europe. We see it to a lesser extent in the United States, depending on the area where you are. Uh, but we continue to see a lot of Canadians who are satisfied with the healthcare system, the way things are working. They like the fact that this is something that is equal for everybody. And it's been remarkable to see. You know, we're not out of the woods yet. There's still a lot of months to go before everybody can get vaccinated. Uh, but the level of support for the healthcare system as we know it and the level of satisfaction from Canadians who have to deal with it uh, is definitely not something that changed because of this pandemic. Our views on many other things, including politics, changed a lot over the course of the past year. Uh, but our commitment to the healthcare system as we know it is still unwavering. Yeah, and to, to narrow that point down even a touch more, Mario, it's our understanding of the long-term senior healthcare system in Canada, the way in which we deal with our elder uh, members of our society and, and how that is staffed, how those people uh, in the circumstances under which they live, uh, we, we, we just sort of always were able to put that into the back of our mind going, oh, I'm sure it's just fine. And we've learned that it wasn't just fine. And if there's anything that's going to emit in a really positive way, emerge rather, in a really positive light from all of this, I would think it's the way in which Canadian seniors in care are handled going forward. Well, there's no question that that is going to be one of the major challenges uh, coming out of this pandemic, Uh, partly because of the situation that we have, which is in many ways related uh, to the way in which this business is operated. It's not a situation that is related necessarily to the level of care, but to the fact that you have somebody who's working in several facilities at yes. the same time mm-hmm. and essentially bringing the virus with, from, with them from one place to another. So definitely some changes are needed there, particularly when it comes to making sure that people can work at one facility and still make a decent living. So we and again, all a lot of those changes, particularly here in British Columbia, those changes where care home workers who were uh, working in more than one facility at once, perhaps even for different companies, but in many cases for the same company being in facility A on Mondays and Tuesdays and Thursdays and Fridays and B and all of that, that's all changed and it's all stopped. And that's that can't be uh, anything but a good thing going forward. It was a little lean in terms of staffing while the those adjustments were made, but by and large, that seems to have been pulled off. Well, it'll be a little bit of a change for sure. You know, I think there's a situation here where uh, everybody's waiting to see what is going to happen. Uh, There might be somebody who wants to work in this business, but can't do it right now because they're fearful of what the pandemic could do. Sure. There's still a lot of um, unanswered questions on this one, but at least we're having conversations about it. I think that is one of the biggest differences. If you go back to the way in which we covered and discussed long-term care a couple of years ago than how we did in 2020. Yeah, indeed. And we've actually seen across the country many dozens, if not hundreds of examples, Mario, of family members who have actually joined the staff of care homes, given the understanding of the lack of staff and the need to be close to their loved ones, they've in fact become care home workers. Well, that is the way it works in other parts of the world as well. You know, I think it's a definitely a larger discussion that needs to happen. 
to figure out how we do this properly. Obviously, there's a lot of people who, who want to continue providing these services, but you know, there's also a little bit of hesitation. If you're somebody who's making that decision right now, it's going to be tough for you to do it because of the pandemic. Paul Meister, Mario Conseco from Research Company on the line, taking a look at the the year that was, still is, but only a matter of hours now, Mario. We're actually counting <laughs> as we take a look at uh, 2020. Uh, I'm wondering about what what you're able to gather from Canadians in your polling about how we feel about next year. Well, I, I would imagine there's uh, in the 90s uh, <laughs> wish to get the heck out of this one. But what it be people? What are people telling you about expectations for next? year, Mario? Well, there's certainly a sense of optimism because of the way in which the year has ended. If we had been in this situation in December without a vaccine arriving, without certain things happening outside of our borders, I think there would be certainly more pessimism from Canadians. I think there's an expectation that by the the first four months of the year, uh, most of us would have been vaccinated, will be able to return to our lives in a similar way that they were back in February. Uh, but there's also a sense of uh, the, in the, the, a, a very different mentality when it comes to the holiday season. You know, I've been asking questions about the stress of the holiday season for yeah. the past few years. Mm-hmm. And we go back to how people thought uh, they were stressed last year because Uncle so-and-so is coming. Right, and right. have to get the turkey ready. And now there's more stress. And it's not because you're having a get-together. It is because of the uncertainty of this pandemic. So having a little bit of context to what really constitutes stress, I think that would be the biggest lesson of this year. Indeed. Um, We didn't have a turkey at our house, Mario. We couldn't get enough of the family together around the table to have one. So we're going to have one in February or April or whenever it works out that we can all officially and quite legally get together. That'll be our Christmas turkey dinner. And it'll be a heck of a lot of fun when it finally does roll around. It's a great idea. More of us should do it. Uh, now, let's talk a little bit about politics, because we got a couple of minutes left, and you spend a lot of your time, you and your team, sampling our, our opinions about politics. What are Canadians telling you about the likelihood, as Prime Minister Trudeau seems to be positively drooling for one, of a federal election in probably early 2021? Well, I think there's a couple of factors at play. One of them is uh, the glaring success of those who held elections during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. The Brunswick government was re-elected. The B.C. government has a majority mandate now. And we saw the Saskatchewan party win again in Saskatchewan. So I think there's an expectation that because people are quite content with the way the COVID-19 pandemic has been handled, that the federal levels would be re-elected. There's also a difficulty from Erin O'Toole to get himself known. You know, his ratings are nowhere near where they should be uh, to suggest that the Conservatives could form the next government. And there's still a third of Canadians who don't know who he is. I agree. It's very complicated in that sense to try to build a career out of this. He's not somebody who is as well-known as other federal conservative leaders of the past. And I think that is going to be very difficult because of the way in which this pandemic is going and the difficulty in actually campaigning and meeting a lot of people. It's going to be hard for them if the election happens in April. Yeah, and all the more reason for Justin Trudeau to want to go to the polls because if Canadians actually do finally get to know who this Aaron O'Toole guy is, they might start to like him and listen to what he has to say. So the less known, the better from the prime minister's point of view. Well, and it's also something that is an advantage for incumbent governments. I think we saw a situation, especially if you look at Saskatchewan and B.C., where the opposition leaders had a tough time breaking through because they couldn't fill a room with people. They couldn't go to a town hall and talk to everybody. They couldn't shake hands or knock on doors. 
So you take away that opportunity from the opposition and everybody is going to look at the incumbents in a much more positive light, which is what we saw in the elections that we had last year, with the exception, of course, of the United States. Okay, well, let's thank you for opening that door, because talk about uh, 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 we have a, a new administration coming in on the 20th of January. Mr. Biden and Ms. Harris, Senator Harris, will become president and vice president, respectively. Uh, and what are your findings vis-a-vis Canadians' sentiments towards the incoming and outgoing administrations? Well, there's definitely a a higher uh, sense of respect for Joe Biden, even though he hasn't really reached the level that we saw with Barack Obama when he was president. There's many Canadians who like what they see more than anything because they really dislike Donald Trump. We never saw more than 20 percent of Canadians believing that Donald Trump was a good president for Canada, and the numbers were significantly lower here in British Columbia. So it's not a situation where people were happy with the way things were going with Trump. And what's really striking is Republican presidents tend to do very well with conservative voters. We saw it with George W. Bush. We saw it with John McCain and Mitt Romney when they were candidates. This never happened to Donald Trump. There's many conservatives who usually gravitate towards Republicans in the United States who say, this is not the person I want leading the grand old party. So uh, as far as uh, there is a sense, though, of anticipation with respect to the incoming administration that uh, the future of Canada-U.S. relations, specifically, Mario, will improve. Well, there's a couple of things that are crucial here. One of them is participation in issues related to climate change. Uh, The actual promise of the United States returning to the Paris Accords is something that makes a lot of Canadians happy. Uh, our views on global warming are very similar when it comes to the United States and Canada when we ask the question. But when you look at the behavior of the administrations, it's definitely different. So I think there's a couple of issues here that are crucial. One of them is definitely climate change. And the other one is what is going to happen with this new NAFTA? You know, this was Donald Trump's idea. He thought he was going to make something that was infallible. And there's definitely going to be more discussions now that you have somebody who really knows what they're doing in the White House to try to figure out how to deal with some of these issues that haven't been managed properly. So it's really about trade and climate change when it comes to the bilateral relation in the next few months. And final question to you, Mr. Conseco. And it's it's been a fantastic year, Mario. We've had a lot of fun on the radio together. And I do appreciate all the good times that you provided and all the excellent information. I'm curious, in the remaining few seconds, if you could talk to us about travel. All of us are dying to get somewhere hot and dry. What, what are we telling you about our travel plans for 2020? We know we got to get a vaccine and there's lots of testing involved, but what are we telling you about our desire to travel? The thing that's amazing when you're asking about travel is everybody wants to get the best deal available. And what is happening now is there's people who are trying to spend some money and they have this really fantastic flight that is $100 to go somewhere around the world. Yeah. Uh, but there's no certainty. You know, there's it's definitely a situation which is more akin to gambling. You know, I have this fantastic ticket to get away from Canada in March, but uh, will you be able to? Will you be vaccinated? <laughs> that's right. It's a very, very tricky situation. So be careful with those deals they may not be what you want even though you're dying to get the heck out of dodge mario canseco thank you very much for this thanks for a terrific year i look forward to an ongoing conversation through 2021 have a great night tonight happy new year happy new year we'll keep those posts coming sterling thank you 
Welcome back. It's Sterling Fox in for Mike Smith, who will be turning to these airwaves on Monday after an excellent holiday break. It's a 2020 goodbye day as New Year's Eve rolls through. We'll talk to the opposition in a few moments about the liquor sale ban again. But right now, a kind of a good news story about a book that came about because of well, a birth for many people, not only here in Canada, but right around the planet. 2020 was a year of, yes, profound joy as they welcome new little lives into their homes. This headline brought this next guest to our attention. New Mom writes empowering kids book about big issues we faced in this challenging year. The new mom is Selena Sayani Antonio. The book is 2020 baby. Selena's on the line. Good morning and welcome. Thanks so much, Sterling. Happy New Year. Well, the same to you, Selena, and congratulations. Thank you so much. Yeah, we welcomed our little Micaiah in June 2020. And uh, so and, and I, I, so when, uh, when did you find out that you were pregnant? So we found out we were pregnant before this global pandemic began. So it was actually 2019. So a lot of, you know, uncertainty leading up to the birth. But June 2020, she came and she is as happy as ever. Well, it's, it's interesting. I, I just wanted to, to, to uh, spend a moment or two with that. One of my colleagues, one of my teammates here, Greg Schott, is about to become a dad in about three months. And he's just, uh, he's on pins and needles. And you know what this is like. It's their first, the whole bit, right? But again, it's the anxiety concern. There's, he and his wife are, are quite legitimately very concerned about staying safe. How, mm-hmm. uh, how did you deal with the anxiety, especially at the beginning of COVID, Selena, when we knew so much less than we know now. Yeah, you know what, Sterling? It was pretty scary. It was very isolating. My husband and I had no clue what was safe to do and what was not safe to do. You know, what was supposed to be such a joyous occasion um, ended up being a little bit isolating and a little bit lonely. Mm -hmm. So we just, you know, communicated lots with each other and just, you know, stuck with our gut and stayed home as much as possible. So what inspired you to write the book? Did you consider the writing of the book before Michaela was born? No. So what happened was I was on a Zoom happy hour with a bunch of moms, and we were all just reflecting on the year it had been. Okay. Uh, It was about September, so just a couple months ago. And I thought, you know, there has been a lot of uncertainty, a lot of worry in 2020. It's been a wild year, lots of ups, downs everything in between, Mm -hmm. but it brought me and my husband life. It brought us our little girl. It brought a lot of my friends, lots of exciting news with pregnancies and their little kids and babies. And I wanted a way for all of our children who wore burn in 2020 to remember it. And that's how 2020 Baby, the children's book, was born. And how long did it take you to, once you had the the focus of the idea and and just sort of isolating 2020 and putting it down as as a as a birth year, unlike no other. So once you once you decided to do that, how long did it take you to actually? And we'll talk about the illustrations, which are wonderful in a moment. But yeah. how long did it take you to write it, Selena? So it took us quite a while. Um, it was a family affair. We were writing until as late as possible. We really wanted to capture everything that 2020 had in store for us. And that meant we were writing, you know, into December. Um, from there, we had to turn it around really quickly. I'm lucky that 
I'm a marketer by trade, so I had a lot of relationships in Vancouver. Uh, the book is 100% made, illustrated, printed, written in Vancouver, B.C., which was really important to me. Um, we were writing all the way till the end of the year. We wanted to make sure it actually tackled all of the major moments of 2020, and I think it accomplished that. And what are the major moments that you identified as needing tackling, if I may ask it that way? Absolutely. A couple major things that I wanted the book to include. Black Lives Matter, that was very important for me that my daughter looked back on this year and learned about the issues that we tackled. Um, Lots of work still left to be done, and the book is kind of open-ended on that topic specifically. Uh, We need more. We need more to be done with that specific topic. Mm -hmm. It tackles the coronavirus, which we're actually still experiencing. Lots of time at home with our family to reflect on, you know, the loneliness that we've all kind of been experiencing with without being able to connect with people and also issues like global warning warming like ocean plastics those sorts of things that again still lots of good stuff has happened this year but lots more work that needs to be done the book is wonderfully illustrated by a vancouver woman named annie wilkinson how did you come across ms wilkinson and uh, get that collaboration going She is absolutely brilliant. She uses her illustrations to tackle the issues in such a light and playful way that I think children will really connect with, and they are connecting with them. Uh, I actually found her online after a lot, a lot of research, and as soon as I saw some of her past work, I knew she was absolutely the the person to do the job. So um, after a little bit of begging and pleading and, you know, sharing the topics with her, she graciously agreed to come on for the project. Well, lucky you, huh? Because it really enhances the whole presentation enormously. Absolutely. She is exceptional. A really, really strong, powerful woman that was super important to me as well. And she has just done such an incredible job capturing my family in this book. So books, kids books, successful kids books, generally, Selena, function on two levels. They function on the target level, the child, and that's usually because of the story content and the illustrations, key for engaging children. But children's successful children's books also engage parents on a completely Mm -hmm. different level. They function successfully on two levels at the same time. You seem to have done that with this book, too. You know, reading this book, how many times have I read it? read it? Probably thousands. It is such a call to action for parents. And that's something that was so important to me. We need to be teaching our kids about these topics as early as possible because they are the change. Because there is still so much work left to be done, they're the ones that are going to need to tackle these issues head on. I think children are so fearless. I mean, my little one is six months old Mm. and she isn't scared of anything sterling. She has such a brave attitude. And I wanted kids to read this book and think, I can take on the world. I can take on these challenges. I want to learn more. And I think that kids are reading the book and feeling so empowered and positive after it, even though there are some scary issues. So, yes, absolutely. The kids, the children, we're all benefiting from it. So how do folks listening to us right now who perhaps have never heard of 2020 Baby go about getting themselves a copy, Selena? You know, thanks for asking. We have everything on the website at 2020baby.com. It's a very low-cost book, very affordable, 
printed on sustainable materials and $1 from every sale goes to the BC Children's Hospital Foundation where Micaiah was born. Uh-huh. Uh, so yes, 2020baby.com and I really, really appreciate any support. And 20 is spelt T-W-E-N-T-Y as opposed to the number 20, 2020baby.com. The author is Selena Sayani Antonio right here in Tawasin, BC. Selena, congratulations again to you and your little family and and also on the book happy new year and we hope you have a wonderful 2021 thanks sterling so much right back at you